0: I love that. I love that. And, I, you know, I mean, what is it, I guess, to connect it back? I think letting go, for example, of the myth of sameness or the myth of meritocracy or the myth of exceptionalism that we hold on so tightly to the United States, to, to this notion of what this country is about. You know, it's like we can appear so fragile. The ego, the collective ego of this country, can feel so fragile that anyone who questions the exceptional nature of the United States is somehow seen as not loving that which is good and uh, you know that that, that dialectic tension is certainly something i've seen for the entirety of my life somehow protesting the vietnam war for example was seen as anti-american and yet you know nothing more loving to stand up fiercely for for the right to question the decisions of those in power
1: This is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. I'm Jason Blair. That's Jerry Colonna, the coach, facilitator, and author. Jerry helps people lead mindfully and with humility, clarity, grace, humanity, and equanimity in his work as the co-founder of the company Reboot, a coaching company where he's created a suite of services focused on helping all sorts of leaders and companies from young venture-backed entrepreneurs to people in the C-suite of Fortune 100 companies. The underlying principle behind Reboot is their belief that better leaders lead to better humans and companies. The underlying principle underneath that is better organizations can make a better world. All of this work contributes to the idea that work is not just a thing that has to destroy us, But it presents an opportunity to create a space that promotes systemic belonging for all people, regardless of their gender, race, religion, sexual orientation, background, or life experiences. Jerry and I have known each other for almost 30 years when I was still a reporter at the New York Times and he was a venture capitalist in New York at Flatiron Partners, Silicon Alley's most dynamic venture capital firm during the dot-com era. Jerry was a 2023 guest on the podcast where we explored his life experiences growing up as a reporter and as a venture capitalist. In that episode, we discussed the concepts of radical self-inquiry and the importance of systemic belonging and touched upon a book he had been working on related to that topic. The book, Reunion, Leadership, and the Longing to Belong, was recently published by HarperCollins. Building on the ideas of his first book, which was named Reboot, in Reunion, Jerry encourages leaders to consider the ways that they have perpetuated and benefited from the conditions in the world that they say they would like to change. In painting a roadmap for leaders to help change the world, Jerry hones in on the concept of belonging. Jerry points out the important role that managers and leaders play in creating welcoming environments, but poignantly notes that many people fall into traps of toxic leadership that he believes they can overcome. A key element, he writes, is that leaders must first face their own need for belonging and how it's thwarted. And he says that through this form of self-inquiry, we can create a safe home for ourselves, and for others. Jerry uses a unique blend of narrative quotes, poetry, stories from the lives of his clients and his own to make those points in reunion. These are points that I believe are not so much applicable just to leaders in a corporate environment or even in the workplace, but at home, in the community groups that we're a part of, and any other place where someone has power over others. In a day and age where discussions about self-awareness can be found on every corner of the office, the internet, or at home, we're going to discuss what radical self-inquiry is, what its fruits truly are, and what it truly means to belong, and how to build a sense of belonging for others. Hey, Jerry. So I I wanted to thank you for joining. This is the second time you're on the podcast. I think, you know, you were on one of like three or four episodes that we launched on our first day. And over the course of the last year, I've told people many times that my episode with you forever changed the focus of the podcast because I realized in that You know, I I had initially thought, you know, based on my work, that I would focus on psychology in the workplace. And what I realized was that what I was really focusing on was how we can learn and grow from our experiences and our adverse uh, uh, and adversity that we face. How we can really have conversations that um, inspire people and bring make people feel whole, right? Not terminally unique and find good paths. So I just wanted to thank you for that because you know we we did a listeners episode at the end of the year and you know a number of the people talk about that episode and a number of the people talk about what grace they've gotten from the pod- podcast. And I, I definitely credit you for for some of that. So I appreciate
0: that. Well, God bless you for saying so. I'm not sure what to say. Um, <laughs> other than um, I'm actually deeply touched. And I feel um, what you're doing is exceedingly important. And I think that what you're doing is really about making it safe for human beings to show up sure Mm -hmm. in the workplace but really in their lives and i can't think of a better term for that than grace yeah um And I I will tell you that I will steal your phrase terminally unique. (laughs) (laughs) That is a winner.
1: (laughs) Which by the way, I stole from my first therapist in rehab (laughs) who said, Jason, you are not terminally unique. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, um, you know, it was my resistance to do group therapy and it was very fascinating. And, um, you know I, I i i like many people who go through addiction think that my experience and my suffering was so unique that i wasn't fixable right that i was right. broken and yeah. she encouraged me to go into a group and it was it was right around 911 and it was a group of uh, it was a gay men's group even though i'm not gay mm-hmm. cuz she was mm-hmm. like They're intellectual, and you like those people. And what I realized was I wasn't alone, and that was a gift she gave me.
0: Yeah, well, let's carry that through to what you're doing with this podcast. You're sending out a message filled with grace, which is that none of us ultimately are alone. We're all connected by what we perceive to be our brokenness. Mm -hmm. And as a result, we all have the opportunity to redeem what was broken and to live into a greater sense of what is possible. So bless you for doing the work you do, because what I see you doing, sir, is being brave and trigger warning, I'm about to curse, brave as fuck (laughs) with telling your own truth, which conversely, or maybe unexpectedly makes it safe for those of us who don't have a microphone.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because I think I, I view it as sort of like a, I don't want to say obligation. It's both an obligation and a gift. Um, But it, and not only rewarding, but there's a sense of purpose that's found in, um, you know, and I, I've talked about this before, I think with you that I didn't have a choice for my, suffering to be public but one of the good things that comes out of it it created an avenue for me to talk to other people about my suffering which allowed or even my poor choices right that allowed them to then talk about theirs that are often in the shadows or they feel like they have to hide And um, when someone comes to me and they say that they feel more comfortable being able to talk about their suffering or their mistakes, Mm. I, it, you know, Stephen Colbert said this like perfectly, and I really do believe it. He said that what punishments of God are not gifts. And his point, which I thought was so powerful, is that suffering is unavoidable as a human, but going through suffering allows you to better relate to people and to love them more deeply.
0: And I think there's real truth to that. Amen. You know, we were joking before we hit record, I was telling you that I just turned 60. And what you just said is one of the pearls uh, that that took me a long, long time to have learned. And um, now that I'm 60, it feels embedded in my eldering body that uh, to just carry that forward.
1: Yeah. Well, I think about like when we were, you yeah, know, 30 years ago or 25 <laughs> years I ago. I pointed out to you. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yes. As you're the one who pointed out, <laughs> um, uh, you know, but if you think back to that time, You know, both of us, by the time we were in our 20s, had experienced, um, you know, a lot of suffering. And there were the seeds to building something better. And, And maybe at that time, I didn't know what I was doing. I think about, like, with you and your venture capital work, I don't know whether it was intentional on your part, to find companies that would do good in the world, um, but I think you're probably already on the journey of taking your pain and turning it into something good, and it's been really neat to watch it evolve
0: over oh, time. Well, well, thank you for that. I think you know to to just comment on what you what you said. I don't know that I set out intentionally to focus on companies that that um, were doing intending to do, to make the world a little bit better. Um, but what I was always drawn to, and this includes my previous career as a reporter, I was always drawn to stories and I was always drawn to the human behind the story. And I think that that has been a hallmark of literally every iteration of every career I've ever had, you know, from the beginning as a young pup reporter to being an investor, to becoming a coach, to building a company, and now being a published author, it's always, I've always been drawn to stories. Because I think that that's how we come to know that we're not alone.
1: Right. Because it's the way I think, and you know, my path similar. But it's the way that we understand the world and understand our connections um, between between us and other people. And I think you know it's important to take care in telling those stories and take care in helping people find their mm-hmm. their stories. And, and and when that's done, I think it can be um, so so impactful and so. Um, powerful for people and 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 it goes back to you know your your new book reunion which you know that idea for me of and it seems so interesting like we talk about things like teamwork and we talk about things like family and we think about think of loved ones and we most people will say that some form of that is important but that word that you use belonging finding a sense of belonging and then also in i don't know that it's purely an opposite that opposite of othering that mm-hmm. exists mm-hmm. is is a conversation that we don't really have like we talk around it for some reason
0: right well yeah i i i think first of all i agree with you that they're they're not balanced opposites you know uh, this notion of systemic othering which to give credit where credit is due, I first heard the term from John A. Powell at the Othering and Belonging Institute mm. out of Berkeley. And, um, but I think that they are cousins, if you will. Um, they're related. And um, it, as you know from my first book, I think that human beings are organized around the pursuit of love, safety, and belonging and you know in a sense belonging becomes inclusive of all it it if i know that where i belong then i can feel safe hmm. and if i'm not safe i can't belong it's it's
1: interesting that you say that so recently as you can imagine 20 plus years later i still get attacked by people for what happened at the New York times. And I understand it. Like I, I have a lot of compassion for people and their perspectives, but there was one recent attack from like inside my circle, right? Like inside my circle that was um, very public. And one of my close friends in that circle asked me, why is this one as opposed to the other ones affecting you? And I said that the first untethering of my sense of belonging in life was my break with the church, and mm-hmm. I lost all that I knew. And then my second one, major one, was uh, m- my break with the Times and journalism. Right. And that there is something about that circle that, you know, of loving relationships where we, um, trust each other. And I should caveat this by saying I have a lot of grace for this person. They have some of their own things going on in their life that have made it very difficult for them. So I'm certainly understanding and have that same compassion that I hope people have for me for them. But what I realized was my fear, what made this uncomfortable as opposed to the thousands of other ones I've seen, was that I was afraid, again, of losing my
0: sense of belonging within that within that group. Can I just say my first impulse was to be angry because I have watched you from afar and I have seen you do your work and I have never witnessed you disavow responsibility for, as you put it, choices that you made even though there is a cloud of what you were experiencing. Personally, internally, biologically. And I think that we should that a foundational component of creating belonging in our community is a notion of redemption. Yeah. I mean, my my God, what is the purpose of religion if not to create opportunities of redemption? Yeah.
1: That concept of second. One of my friends who was uh, a part of that conversation back and forth with this person, Hmm. um, you know, said... uh, The the other person who was making the attack said something along the lines of, are you going to give him 67 chances? And my friend responded, I give people as many chances as they need. And yeah, that was... Unbelievably powerful, powerful for me. But I, I would also say, without my poor choices and without the suffering that occurred for them, I don't even think I could have given this person the grace that I'm able to give them. So it's, I do believe that thing that Colbert said. Like you know, this punishment
0: has been a gift, and I wonder then, therefore, if it's in fact even punishment. That is true. I agree. I agree.
1: And I feel the, you know, I lost my mom earlier in October. And I feel the very same way about that. Like I walked out of her, both her funeral and and at her deathbed, I was sitting right beside her. I was blessed enough to like be holding her during her last uh, breath or sitting beside her during her last breath. And you know my thoughts I thought would turn to sadness, but they turn toward gratitude, and they turn toward the parts of my mom that I realized were in me and the parts of my other ancestors that I realized that were in me that I know I want to carry on, that I want to bring more of in the world and um, i'm not I, I'm not sure those things are actually punishments,
0: yeah well i just want to pause and honor your mother what was her first name fran may her soul rest in peace fran jason is a good person and he's doing well in the world you know someone asked me what
1: what um are you grateful for this year and i said that i'm Grateful for the fact that my mother died, Mm. being proud of me and knowing that I would be okay.
0: Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's. Soul rest in peace, right? Right, right. And it's
1: that, I mean, in that, you know, I think of my relationship with her and that sense of belonging that Mm. came from that. And I'm just glad that I've had the other experiences that have allowed me to 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 start start to build that in other places. And even frankly, to facilitate or be a part of helping other people find that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because, you know, to your point about her soul resting in peace, what I find is that when people find a sense of belonging in life, their soul gets people early. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Yeah. And so why did you decide to focus on this, the othering and belonging, and what I would say the key ingredient, I think, is that idea of radical self-inquiry, that to build belonging in other people... Uh, for other people as a leader. And I don't think it's just leaders at work, leaders at home, leaders in communities, anyone who has power over someone else, that you have to build that belonging for yourself,
0: it seems. Well, I think you just nailed it. I mean, you know, in the midst of the pandemic, in the midst of, you know, a kind of radical re-examination of how we are with one another, manifested in everything like protests in the streets to really calling into question um, power structures. Uh, One of the things that happened for me was that I was uh, really called, and I tell this story, by my daughter to go further than I had gone, if you will, in my first book, Reboot. In Reboot, I talked about this process, I called it leadership in the art of growing up. And I talked about the process of using leadership, and by your extension, I think it's a great extension, using the experience of being in a power position, to complete the work of being the best human we can be, of being an adult, to use that language. Right. And then I began to look at the question of, well, being a better human, because I use the phrase often, better humans make better leaders, being a better human doesn't end at my own body. Right? Being a better human means what am I doing to create the possibility for love, safety, and belonging for other people.
1: And I imagine also a part of that must be, what am I doing, whether intentional exactly. or not, yes. to
0: undermine that? That's right. That's right. It, both intentional or not. It, the, the, you know, just like in my first book, the, the core organizing question was, how have I been complicit in creating the conditions in my life that I say I don't want? We are oftentimes complicit in and benefiting from the conditions in the world that we shake our head at. We say, for example, we don't want to live in a world or in a country that is obsessed with guns, but what does that really mean? Mm. And we don't want to live in a world where uh, leaders are chastised because they diversify those who represent their brand in an ad, right? Something as serious as yeah. that, yeah. And yet, and yet, what do we do about it? And what is our responsibility, moral and otherwise, to challenge those things?
1: You know, you're reminding me of something sort of like post journalism. Career for me, which was very much about helping people and bringing better things into the world. And I remember this one moment being at a march and protesting and listening to the people who were talking and realizing for myself, I'm just out here protesting. But like, what am I really doing in my day to day in my life to empower women? And that that just happened Mm. to be the topic. And then I realized I'm out here protesting, but that's about it. Mm -hmm. And um, that was a it was an interesting journey for me. That you know, in the interesting part of it, of course, Jerry, it created a lot of cognitive dissonance because there was a little voice in my head saying, "No, you're fine. No, you're, uh, no, you're not doing enough." And another part of me was saying, "Actually, you're doing harm." And so it mm. it very much, I think, helped me become more aware and conscious mm.
0: and proactive
1: if that makes sense
0: it totally makes sense i mean i you know yet again my friend we find our journeys being so similar i mean the that that was so much of the profound journey that i went through in writing this book was was having moments continuous moments of wait what what have i been doing you know i talk about being committed to compassion and empathy well, what does that really look like? And, and how am I using what power I have to, to not only um, do some positive good, but to not do harm, um, which, is, which is very complicated. It's very, very tough. And I applaud you for asking yourself that question. But honestly, it, it, it doesn't surprise me. Because I would argue you've been on a journey of radical self-inquiry for decades.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, because everything, well, you know, a lot of my earlier experiences in life made me question everything about myself. And not just in a negative way, but like the, the gap between the way I perceive myself and reality. And taking a simple example, just having a mental illness, being diagnosed with bipolar, and what does that mean to who I am versus who I perceive myself to be? Or choosing to um, fabricate or plagiarize stories, who who am I compared to who I want to be? And it's not really binary, because I'm both. I think. Mm-hmm. There's there's that point in your book where you discuss being in high school mm-hmm. and you were at Murrow High School, right? And I was uh, in Brooklyn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, in Brooklyn. And you talk about that group that existed to sort of like l- look at and explore sort of r- racial challenges within right. within Murrow and that there was that facilitator, a black man who who made that comment. You know, you had made a comment that, you know, we're all the same under our skin, which is what we're taught, right? Like, that is the message that is sent to us. And the facilitator told you, hey, man, that's a myth.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I'll give credit where credit is due again. So the group was, I believe, part of something called the National Conference of Christians and Jews. And it was originally formed to combat anti-Semitism. And by the time I was in high school, the facilitators would go from high school to high school, uh, really linking that early work with um, combating anti-black racism and other forms. We didn't use the term othering, but clearly other forms of uh, making the other. And you know, I was invited to participate in the group of us. And it was, it was a really instructive uh, moment uh, because it was that it was a moment that stuck with me even now. I mean, it's 45 years later, you know, and I can still see the look on his face. And, and I felt a bit of shame at the moment. Later, I was reading Bell Hooks' uh, book on uh, killing rage, uh, on ending racism, and it was there I think that she talked about uh, beloved difference, which is such a beautiful phrase, Mm -hmm. Um, and and to that we don't have to mask difference in order to unite ourselves. We don't have to. Um, mask what is uh what makes us unique in order to come together
1: so in that moment you said you felt um a matter of shame and it, yeah. it's a, it's a very interesting word because i think when i was younger and i missed something like that right. i did feel shame and uh and over time, I realized that shame isn't always productive, but it sounds like you turned that insight into something productive.
0: Well, I guess, you know, call me fortunate, call me well-trained, but even in that moment, and, and, and call the facilitator skillful, because what he did not do was chastise me, right? right. And so he lifted up a lesson, and, 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 and the lesson was, well, well, hold on. What are you actually saying about that? And because because of that moment, I began to explore um, what I in in the book I call it the myth of sameness, um, which I think is a parallel to the myth of exceptionalism, right? And and what if you if you look at those two myths that so marked the American experiment, it's it it fails not only. F- it causes us to fail to not only see difference, but it also, f- it, it, it causes us to overlook when we fail to live up to the aspirational goals. And so, coming all the way back to that moment, and I love that you picked up that moment. What happened for me was I went from being shamed, feeling shamed, and therefore shutting down to being curious and really mm-hmm. saying, What did this man really mean? Yeah. Because it, it went against everything, as you point out, everything that we were taught in those turbulent times, you know, the post-1960s, we're talking nineteen seventy-seven when this happened for me. And and to to think about it, it's like, well what does it actually mean to be in community? Do I have to make you fit a normative structure that falls on this notion of sameness for us to be in community? It's so interesting because it is, to your point, very much
1: in the American experience, there is a need or drive to feel like we... That the accepted people, or that that we are so similar, and I actually think it it minimizes one of the beauties of America. It's that our differences can coexist, and in our best moments, swim in beautiful directions.
0: I, I think you're saying it better than I did. I mean, I th- I think that, that that you know this this scene that happened to me um, uh, or, or this experience had happened to me, which I don't mean to overplay it, but it was seminal in the sense that it was like, it was like in Buddhism, we would call it a pointing out instruction where someone wiser and elder looks at us and says, uh, not quite, not so fast there, buddy boy, think of it this way. And, you know, I had the same experience, Quite frankly, I was reading a, a brilliant essay by James Baldwin called "The Price of the Ticket," and he talks mm. about, you know, and he and he's referring to the the ticket of whiteness and the movement of people, especially those of us of European descent, into a dominant culture. Mm. And he talks about, uh, you know, the the Anglicization of names, and he talks about. Uh, sort of disconnecting from our past as a means to moving towards the safety of dominance. Well, it's and, that it's interesting uh, you say that,
1: Jerry, because do, do you think that part of the reason why we need to have this sense of sameness is rooted in some of our guilt about our past? I take an example of a it was in a group of friends and someone had brought up Bigfoot and they had made some casual comment about that. And no one else in the group, other than one woman who is native American in the group Hmm. realized, you know, she said it drives her a little mad when people make those kinds of comments about Bigfoot or make jokes about it because in her culture, and she was Ojibwe, Hmm. the, bigfoot sasquatch is actually a sacred b- being that sort of mm-hmm. brought th- brought them and created their world and in that moment for me i thought that there's so many things that where i need us to feel similar that i end up dishonoring the beauties of our differences and i wonder whether some element of that for me is I need to feel or I have some need or some drive to feel that we're all the same, so I can race in my head the the horrible things that I am partially, right? Because I'm not all black, um, but that I'm partially, or my ancestors are partially responsible for. I think you're
0: hitting upon it. I you know, it's hard for me to describe what it is for you. But I I think that um, looking at it purely from the lens of my own experience as a white identifying cisgender male, straight male, I think that guilt may be one of the words. Um, fear definitely seems to be embedded mm. in that. Fear of the loss of status. Mm. Fear of the loss of that which my ancestors fought to um to to gain think about for example um the number of people who both um disown the parts of their family tree that do not fit a shining example hmm. of aspirational values coupled with the movement that many ancestors who emigrated to the united states many not all movement away from say speaking uh, the language of their birth or discouraging their children from speaking the language of their birth to not staying open to it and so i think part of it is shame part of it is guilt Part of it is I don't know what to make of this. All right. So, how did you and your friends or react when your, when your friend pointed out about the, the 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 stories and the importance of Sasquatch? We told her, and
1: I think there was unanimity in this that it was a blessing because it was a gift to us because she was able to. Articulate her point in a way that didn't leave anyone feeling de- defensive, allowed others to learn and explore and come to a better understanding. And I felt not only would it, for me, help in other interactions I had, it would help me even more in just being mindful, not just for Native Americans, of anyone's differences for me and for me hearing the story ended up not just in not in that way but being a blessing because I learned more about a culture that's contributed to who I am that I didn't
0: even realize so that's where we landed well i i i love the fact that in the end she was received with curiosity and I want to honor her skill at being able to do that and recognize that in that moment she had every right to be angry. Absolutely. And, and and I can only imagine, empathetically imagine how often she was not received in the Mm -hmm. way that you all received her. Or didn't even feel safe enough. Is safe enough to say anything. That's yeah. right. That's right. That's right. And and you know, I th- I think what I admire uh, about that story is multiple levels. I admire her strength. I admire her precision, her clarity, her fierceness. I am saddened that she needed that, and I admire the way you all uh, received it without defensiveness, but curiosity. Um, because if you will, that's the whole point of the book that I, that I wrote. That's what I'm trying to engender is empathy, you know, going past, yeah, going past like false equivalencies. You know, when I explore in depth the experience of my ancestors, it is not to offer them as an equivalent to say your ancestors, but by connecting with their experience i hope to create more receptivity to hearing your story you know a great example for me
1: of that same thing was a book that and this was right after the times one of the things that happened after the times I had a lot of time on my hands and a lot (laughs) of time to think. So I would would go to the Barnes and Noble in Union Square with a bag and just (laughs) buy books. And one of the books I bought was the Diary of an Irish Slave Girl. And it was an Irish girl, I think from, I may get it wrong, but Mm. it was somewhere in Southern Ireland. And... It may have been Galway, and her family had gotten into some kind of debt. And a part of that, she was indentured and then taken to the Caribbean. Uh And and just being able to learn that experience and honor that experience opened me up. So, you know, over time, many, you know, friends who are Irish-Irish, right, from the island or Irish-American, would talk to me about uh, my pain and suffering and the pain and suffering of my ancestors and i w- was able to turn to them and say don't diminish your own yeah because they suffered in deep ways that that while you're sitting here with your guilt right we share way more in common even though we're very different we share right. way more in common than i think we realize and and that's that part of empathy that i think comes from learning and and going beyond the surface of what we're taught or what's put in our face, and trying to really, and you know, you can do it very intentionally, where you say, "I'm want to learn about a certain culture or thing." But I think right. if you're just
0: curious, right, it can it can help so much. I I, I think you just said it uh, intensely, and and we need to be very very careful. The experience of say, the Irish uh, being transported to Australia or being sent as indentured servants um, uh, around the world um, has elements that can create an empathetic bridge to those who have had enforced diaspora, enforced enslavement. But there is a difference, yes. and that difference needs to be acknowledged and honored. Um, and you know, I, I, you know, maybe I'm profoundly optimistic about human beings, but I think that we can hold the polarity of both similarity and difference simultaneously. And I think when I think about policy decisions or when I think about governance or I think about their use of power, whether it's in business or community or political states, and I see a lack of acknowledgement about both similarity and difference, I think that's the result is policies that actually do more harm than good. Yeah, and, and
1: even taking that example that you said of the, I think it was like, I don't know, it was hundreds of thousands of people who were forced to Australia, and many of them were Irish, there also needs to be a recognition that while our experiences are similar, that there were inflection points in history where they became very different. And that right. while we may be able to connect on that, we also have to, I guess, coming back to your Original point to truly understand the world around us and be empathetic, we have to understand those, those differences. Because yeah. there may be a moment where those Irish in Australia were very much like the indigenous people, but that, mm. that branched and that changed. And understanding that not only does it allow you to get the value of diversity, it helps build that, that
0: empathy for people. I think, I think. I I, and and I would say I'm with you in the I think that that's correct. Um, um, I I certainly know that in my experience of being educated, these there are whole parts of this experience. You know, it's called the movement towards whiteness that were lost, that were just not shared. It was it was a a kind of presumption uh, that. You know, things were always this way. And even though I've read plenty of books talking about race as a construct, as a social construct, to to really experience, well, what do, what does that mean? And what more importantly, what did it mean to those to whom I see myself as belonging, mm. how did they respond? And what is my responsibility to, the world, and to my descendants.
1: Yeah. One of the key fundamental ingredients that you talk about in the book is, and you know, I know in my work, I often talk about self-awareness and how, Mm -hmm. I I often say self-awareness is not particularly helpful unless it's actionable, right? Unless you know (laughs) the impact on other people. It's good to know how I perceive myself, but it's really helpful to know the way, but that idea of radical self-inquiry being a foundation of this, what, is that, what does that look like? And what, what do you view as the importance of it to getting to this empathetic place where you can help people build a sense of belonging and you can also belong? Because I think there are some of us who work against our own
0: belonging very intentionally yes. out of fear. Yeah, so so we're we're choosing safety in that regard. Right. I think that it's important to start with the definition of radical self-inquiry, which is something I coined, I don't know, 15, 16 years ago. And it's this notion that um, that the masks that we wear to protect ourselves are slowly and compassionately brought down, stripped away so that there's no place left to hide from mm. ourselves <laughs> yeah, yeah and 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 that that pausing and realizing that oh this is a this is an important process in the art of growing up this is an important process in taking full accountability and responsibility you know, we talked about the word redemption before, of moving towards a redeemed state, if you will. And to then overlay that and apply that in this larger circle, which is, you know, okay. So I I thrust my fist in the air to shout about some injustice. Let me be clear about my own experience of that, not to invoke guilt, which shuts us down from action, but to actually ground our actions in empathy and compassion so that our actions are not performative. Mm.
1: What do you think from your perspective? Like, you know, I know some people are going to take this book as a leadership book for Mm. workplace right but i think it's bigger than that because you talk about the idea of like anyone who has power really considering what they you know Mm. doing that hard work of considering the role we play in creating empathy creating compassion and Mm. then also uh, taking it away or harming it and then thinking about leaders more broadly, whether it's me leading my family or my company or, or being a leader in my group of friends or even in a social dynamic with someone, you know, we both host podcasts, which creates mm-hmm. parasocial relationships where, you know, people are giving a lot to us and we're not able to give back the same to them, but we have a platform. Like, what is that for you, the importance of people leading in all those realms of radically exploring themselves, because those people do have power over us. We do have power over people. So I'm curious right. what what your thought on that. Is.
0: Well, I first of all, I, I I agree with you that I think many of the things that I wrote about and explored in Reunion are applicable applicable beyond the realms of corporations. I wrote with that particular angle because it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an endemic milieu in which I operate. And I feel a responsibility to use whatever resources and power I have to influence the realms and domains that I have the most influence in. And so that's why I, I sort of framed it in that way. I think this is this is incredibly important. Uh, however, and uh, you know, I keep thinking of this image of us trying to build, let's call it, a house of belonging, and to quote a poem by David White, trying to build a house of belonging, and this is, in fact, the foundational work. And as any home builder knows, if you build a house without a good foundation, it will blow over in the first storm. And I think that's what we're seeing right now, quite frankly, is a lot of houses were built on poor foundations, and they're blowing over in the storms. Hmm. You know, the title,
1: Hmm. Reunion, you know, I keep thinking to myself as I went through the book, you know, we're, we're sort of reuniting with ourselves we're coming home we're reuniting for others is what, what how do you look at that title that idea of reunion
0: well i i think i think you nailed it um, you know i like the notion of reunion because for me it's ultimately hopeful It talks, you know, implicit in that word is um, a goal state where acknowledging difference but being back in a union that may or may not have existed in the past uh, feels quite hopeful. And you're right. Mm -hmm. I do see it as a, a a reunion with our ancestors a reunion with the parts of ourselves that we'd really rather not look at, and a reunion, if you will, with others, three gr- great reunions. And, and you know, I, I'll tell you that towards the end of writing the manuscript, um, I think it was in maybe the second year, the poet Bill Hooks passed away. And she was very, very good friends with my teacher, Sharon Salzberg. And I, like a lot of folks, just picked up copies of her poetry to to reread. And I came across this beautiful collection of poems called When Angels Speak of Love. And in it, she writes the first lines of that are something like, When angels speak of love, they tell us all things are union and reunion. And I was blown away by those few words. When angels speak of love, they tell us all things are union and reunion. And for me, it just it yeah, it just summarized this notion of what I was trying to get to, which was that when we reconnect with the angels, and to me, angels are our ancestors, when we hear them speak of love. Then it's possible to move towards union and reunion.
1: <clears throat> that made me think of something that you talk about in the book. Mm-hmm. That's a part of the part of the process. You know, you, you you wrote about two things that I think, or maybe it's one thing that I think people. I think just like self-inquiry may be uncomfortable with. And you you asked the question, you know, that we need to ask ourselves, what do we have to give up that we love and value, including those perceptions of ourselves, which really ties back to the reuniting with ourselves, you know, and we need to do that to create those systems of belonging. And there's this author I love, Judith Vorst, and mm. she writes, she wrote this book called Necessary Losses. And right. she writes about leaving and letting go. And she has this quote where she says, the path to human development is, is, is paved with renunciation, oh. right? That by leaving and letting go is how we grow. And that's what makes
0: those losses necessary. Oh, I love that. I love that. And, you know, I mean, what is it, I guess, to connect it back? I think letting go, for example, of the myth of sameness or the myth of meritocracy or the myth of exceptionalism that we hold on so tightly to uh, the United States, to, to to, to this notion of what this country is about you know it's like we're we're we we can appear so fragile the ego the collective ego of this country can feel so fragile that anyone who questions the exceptional nature of the united states is somehow seen as not loving that which is good and uh, you know that that that, that dialectic Tension is certainly something I've seen for the entirety of my life. Somehow, protesting the Vietnam War, for example, was seen as anti-American, and yet, you know, it nothing, made yeah more loving to America, more loving to stand up fiercely for, for for the right to question the decisions of those in power.
1: Right, right. Both ourselves and and others. I wanted to go ahead and give you a chance to, you know, I so appreciate having you on again, but to just sort of close out with any closing thoughts. And I, I before I do that, I just want to say, you know, Jerry, we didn't talk about it this time, but you did not grow up in the easiest home or the easiest childhood. And so often we're used to reading stories about people who go through those experiences and then go through bad things or do bad things. So I just want to honor the fact that through your adversity and suffering, you've found the seeds in the soil to grow some beautiful things in the world so well
0: don't make me cry dude i i can't tell you how meaningful it is to me in this moment in my life to hear you say that so i'm deeply appreciative of that um and I cannot take credit for that. Um, I was, I had mothers and a mother and a father who both struggled with their own mental illness challenges. I, as you know, I struggled with significant bouts of depression, including suicide attempts. And I was also incredibly fortunate to have stumbled upon a group of elders who raised me into second adulthood, including my first psychoanalyst, Dr. Sayers, whom I write about extensively in Reboot. And so whatever good I do in the world today stems from the elders who took a kind of uh, ill-formed lump of clay, if you will, And made something of it. And Mm -hmm. so, the fact that you're appreciating that, the fact that I might be doing a little bit of good, is just me paying them back. Amen to that, my friend. Amen. Yeah.
1: Thanks, Jerry. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you. And thank you for the work that you do. And thank you. I'll say one more thing. Your close reading of Reunion moves me. It's not an easy book. It would have been easier for me to write Reboot 2, you know, the rest of the story, if you will. Um, but I wanted a book that would challenge both myself and, and those who consider themselves fans of my work. Yeah. And this is a challenging book. Um, but hopefully, it's a hopeful book. And that's what I, and what I would say is we feel the darkness of division right now. And I hope that this is a little bit of light in that darkness right mm-hmm. now. That's powerful.
1: I um, once worked with a wonderful woman who became Filipino woman who became the um, first Navy, I think, surgeon, woman, surgeon. Mm. And she used to have coasters, like coffee coasters that she would (laughs) put on her conference table. And they said, uncomfortable yet? (laughs) Question mark. I will tell (laughs) you (laughs) that uh, your book is not for those who need to be comfortable Yes, uh, but but <laughs> I would encourage all of them who fear being uncomfortable to uh, not run away from it because there is such joy uh, oh at the God. end of being uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, Amen, brother. If you'd like to join us for more discussions with us and other listeners, we can be found on most social media platforms, including a listener-run Facebook group called The Silver Linings Fireside Chat. For deeper conversations with our guests and live conversations with other listeners, you can also join us at our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash The Silver Linings Handbook. This is Jason Blair and this is The Silver Linings Handbook podcast. We'll see you all again next week.